This is an AMI podcast. I'm Joyita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. The disabled character is almost always portrayed as tragic in the stories we tell ourselves. Be it fairy tales or theater, television shows or big-budget productions, there is a limited perception of what living with a disability actually means. Disability stories are often centered on inspirational narratives about tragic people overcoming the odds, chasing their happily ever after. Otherwise, stories about disability prominently feature able-bodied people seeking redemption or personal growth. When it comes to the embodied experience of disability, these narratives have very little to say. However, performers with disabilities themselves are creating space to tell stories about disabilities through the lens of personal experience. Today, we discuss storytelling through a disability lens. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I hope you're doing well. If you tuned into last week's episode with Jessica Watkin talking about interdisciplinary magic and accessible disability-centered theater, this next episode is almost like a, you know, a part two of that conversation where we're going to talk a little bit more about theater and we're going to talk a little bit more about writing and performance all through the lens of disability. My guest today is Afira Kaloff. Ophira is a multi-award-winning disabled writer, performer, and producer. Her work weaves together music, comedy, and storytelling, centering disability and chronic illness experience. In conjunction with the Center for Independent Living in Toronto, Ophira is hosting Crip Storytelling, a program which invites a cross-disability group of participants to explore how we tell our personal stories through a lens of disability. Hello, and welcome to the program. It's great to have you with us. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for having me. So the story goes that when you were a kid, your mom and dad and or your parents took you to see Beauty and the Beast, and that's what launched a lifelong passion for theater and performance. What was it about that experience that blew you away? You know, I, I think I was three years old at the time. And so, you know, hindsight, maybe I'm putting more on the memory than, than what happened. But I just remember the wardrobe with all of the dancing, the plates and cutlery and the magic of seeing an ensemble bring, bring a moment to life that you wouldn't have thought possible. I just, it was so beautiful the way that everyone worked together to to create this feeling and emotion. And I remember just sitting there in absolute awe. I told my parents, that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. And they were like, that's nice, sweetie. Uh, <laughs> you know, good for you. Uh, let's go home now. Do you say, okay, I, I want to do this for the rest of my life. And then as a teenager, you go ahead and you are a model student. You're at every rehearsal. You know all your lines and backwards and forwards. You got it all figured out. How long were you able to sustain that really that, that high level of productivity? Was there ever a point in your life where you said, okay, you know what? I, I need to slow things down a little bit. Yeah, you know, I had a lot of sort of little, little check-in moments, little flags that... 
um, I, looking back on, I wish, I wish that, uh, that I had gotten slightly different messaging of this idea mm. of being an achiever because I was exactly that. I was very committed. I was like, I'm going to sign up for everything and do it all and make sure that I'm doing the best I can, juggling from rehearsals to, you know, piano class, dance class, voice lessons, music theory, the whole thing. Um, and there were there were moments when I was, in high school, I started feeling uh, my disability sort of started started making itself a bit more known. It's one that mm. that I was born with, but that definitely both developed over time and became exacerbated by by some injuries. And the first of those moments really happened when I was in high school, and so I remember being like, "Okay, well, I can't do everything, so." All I like switched schools to be at a school that was closer to my home that I'd spent less time on transit, so then mm-hmm. I could still do everything. Um, I didn't quite get the message of slowing down. I thought that I thought that art was something that that was almost like this uh, this mission that you had to push through, and you know it was tough and it was hard, but. If you pushed your way through, that was the sign that you were a true artist or that you were somehow worthy of uh, of being an artist. And not only were artists pushing themselves, but if you were an artist with a disability, one might even want to sort of stay closeted about the fact that one had a disability because you're not seeing disabled characters represented on screen. You're not seeing them on stage. Did the lack of representation have an impact on your journey as an artist? It had a huge, huge impact. Um, when I was growing up, I, I started really getting into performance, and I was specifically focused on opera. And mm. opera is, uh, there's a lot of very strong traditions in an opera performance. You have to breathe in certain ways, and it, I wasn't even allowed to wear glasses on stage for productions, never mind bring a mobility aid. Um, mm-hmm. And so I tried really hard to kind of hide hide anything that I needed. Um, and it, it got really quite dangerous for me. I had situations where I was performing and, you know, would be lying down on the floor backstage and have to have a number of cast members help me kind of stagger on onto the stage and do what I needed to do before I got off to class. And when I finally actually started uh, using different mobility aids and supports that that made my disability a bit more visible, um, I had that feeling of, oh, well, now, now I'm more supported in my life, but I guess I can't be an opera singer anymore because mm. I couldn't imagine a possibility uh, of performing. And that's really what, what led me to start writing my own content. It resonates with me when you say that, you know, you started using aids that made your disability visible. Because when I was 18 or 19, that's when I started using the white cane for mobility. And I thought, oh, my God, I am sticking out like a sore thumb. What people are going to see is my disability that is going to overlook the person. But you say that you, you made a choice at that stage in your life to start writing your own content. Many people would have given up on their dream. What drove you to pursue something different? I think that there was a combination of factors. Um, 
part of it is just me personally. I've always loved loved the arts. It's the way that I that I process my own emotions and experiences. So, in some ways, there was sort of the natural follow through. But I think a really big shift happened for me because, for me, I think I mentioned I. Uh, my disability is one that I was born with, but I didn't know. And as it started becoming much more present in my life, I had a period of about five years where I was experiencing really, really intense, scary symptoms with no explanation and no understanding Mm. of what was happening. Um, I was in and out of the medical system of emergency rooms. And, you know, it was a really really difficult, awful time period of not understanding, not having any touchstones. And I didn't know that people could have those experiences because all Mm. of the stories that I had seen were, okay, somebody gets sick or someone has an experiences an injury and, you know, you go to the doctor, the doctor says, okay, this is what's happening. And then you make a plan. Maybe the plan is adapting to what's happening. Maybe the plan is you know figuring out but there's always some sort of a there's language around it there's a diagnosis there's um a sense of what's happening and Mm -hmm. i had never seen a story where someone's body changed in such a drastic way and there wasn't a clear reason and they were just kind of floating floating around and so it also became really important to me to try to to bring forward some of those stories and narratives um, starting with my own experience because you know mm-hmm. that's the one I lived um, but also once I sort of started learning a bit more about the disability community forming relationships and realizing like oh my goodness there's so many stories that haven't been told mm-hmm. um, that are beautiful and or funny or interesting in different ways, but also that have so much power and that could really shift shift a lot of the ways that we as a society understand disability. I'm Juwetha Gupta, and my guest today is disabled writer, producer, and performer, Ophira Kaloff. Ophira is talking to me a little bit in the first half of the program about how she got involved in the arts and her lifelong passion, as well as a desire to tell stories by and for people with disabilities. In that vein, Ophira, you've, uh, you've actually planned to hold a workshop. You give a number of workshops, but you're planning to hold one uh, in conjunction with the Center for Independent Living in Toronto. What is that workshop all about? I am I'm so excited about this workshop. It's been a little bit of a it's been in the works for I think almost a year with just a number of factors that kind of pulled together to make it happen now. The workshop really came out of this idea that often uh, disabled folks, folks who are chronically ill, deaf folks, um, and many people who identify in different ways sort of under the umbrella of disability often are not given much agency in our stories Mm -hmm. and that's you know there's the media aspects of it the tv shows that you absolutely brilliantly mentioned uh, at at the top of the episode you know overcoming narratives um sort of pitiful stories this idea that there always has to be a resolution um, but it also comes into play with our own stories. I can say for mm-hmm. myself as a wheelchair user, I'm asked all the time, you know, what happens? 
um, you know, what did you do to yourself uh, by strangers in the elevator? And we're often asked to frame our narratives in specific ways, maybe in medical context or for different government paperwork. And, you know, sometimes we might have experiences that, that we want to share with people that we feel like aren't necessarily easy to explain because there aren't those other touchstones. And this workshop came out of the idea of creating space to think a little bit about how that is, why it is, and what we can do about it. You know, what are our mm. options with our stories? How can we claim agency over them? So is the format of the workshop meant to be uh, discussion-based in that people will sort of talk about crip storytelling and what it is and how to make space and make room for some of these stories about disability issues? Or is it actually a, a workshop in the sense of people bringing their writing in and, you know, you'd help them polish their stories or put their own thoughts on paper or, you know, or, or through, you know, type them out on a laptop? What, what is the plan here? Yeah, it's actually a little bit of both. So hmm. on a Monday the 20th, there's a two-hour, we'll take a break in the middle and um, kind of feel it out as to, to how everyone's feeling for the structure. But it's more of a presentation about the idea of storytelling, giving an ending with some prompts and tips and tricks, and um, focusing on what, what you described for, for that first part with sections for Q&A mm -hmm. and discussion. And then after that, we have three smaller one-hour group labs scheduled that people can sign up for. So maybe they attended the, the main presentation and they took away the prompts and want to work on their own story. And in those labs, people will have the chance to bring their stories. Maybe it's just an idea or a snapshot, a moment, uh, something that, or a point of view that they want to figure out how to communicate. And we'll spend time in those workshops, um, actively workshopping uh, each person's story. I'm sure this isn't accurate, but when I think about writers, I have this sort of idea in my mind about someone off by themselves and maybe in a hotel, maybe in a cafe somewhere, he's writing away, you know, oblivious to the world. What is it about writing in a collective or sharing your writing in its early stages with a group of people that makes it so special? I think that kind of comes to me, that really ties in with the idea of interdependence um, mm -hmm. and really thinking of the beauty of, of disability community um, I, for one, I come from, I have a background in improv and sketch comedy, which are both very collaborative art forms. Um, I love the idea of a writer's room, uh, a space where people can kind of share and build off of each other and feel seen and, and gain that feedback and not spiral into the existential coffee field angst that sometimes will happen in a cafe. Mm. Um, but there's also just this idea that as as a storyteller, we we have this concept that someone has to be a solo artist or, you know, it's their vision, their story. Um, and that can be really quite a barrier to a lot of people. And it can be really intimidating and isolating. And it's fun in simple terms. Like it's it's nice to be able to share these moments together, uh, to find the, our, the things we have in common, the things that we experience differently and create that space to support each other to tell to tell our stories. 
Is part of that support also enabling launching different kinds of stories into the world? Because I think you know Jess Watkin, and you know I had Jess Watkin on the show just a week ago or so. And in the anthology that Jess Watkin put out, Interdependent Magic, there are four very different plays all put on by disabled uh, performers and 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 theater you know and 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 people who are playwrights and artists when you think about the the scope of stories that disabled people tell about themselves does a workshop like the kind that you're hosting open up the opportunities to launch interesting and as yet untold stories into the canadian theater and performance landscape i really hope so um I yeah, I'm really close with with Jess Watkin, and uh, Jess actually was the dramaturge for my solo show, Literally Titanium. Uh, so along with being close friends, we've also we also work together professionally, um, and it's funny because we work together on a solo show, which sounds like oh, it was my singular vision. I was the performer and the writer on paper, I guess technically. Um, but that show had a whole team behind it that collectively brought it to light. It would not exist the way that it is without the insights from someone like Jess and from Alia Rasool, who was working in, in production on it, um, and director Sonia, and the list goes on and on. Um, so I think both in terms of content, you know, we all only experience the world from our own perspective. The more perspectives mm-hmm. we have, the more beautiful and interesting and exciting our stories can be. But it also Mm -hmm. offers opportunities in terms of the structure of our stories, the content, the ways in which we communicate, um, and allowing those to influence how our stories are told as well. One of the things that I've often noticed about the theater, just as you go, it's not a very flexible experience. You know, you get there, the seating is a bit uncomfortable sometimes. It's often very cold, um, you know, so it's not a, a space that is traditionally designed for all kinds of bodies and all kinds of people with different lived experiences. In your work as a performer, how have you managed to open up the theater space to make it more inclusive of people with different disabilities? This is a great question. I, I often feel like we romanticize the idea of suffering for art. Um, and it's absolutely ridiculous. Why why would we suffer for something where we're supposed to feel connection and community and ideally some form of enjoyment as well? Um, a theater experience should not be like being held hostage at an uncomfortable chairs, cold room. You can't leave until the intermission. Um, So a big thing that I'm really interested in the ideas of relaxed performances and creating spaces where where people are really encouraged to exist as they need to. Um, Some of some of the time, you know, you can make an introduction off the top of the show and say, you know, please feel very free to like move around, make noise, come and go as you need, like use the space in a way that works for you. But then the lights go down, people's habits kick in, and it's really hard to break that feeling in the theater. Um, Mm -hmm. In my most recent show, the one I mentioned, Literally Titanium, Jess and I created a moment because I, as a performer, find it hard to stay sort of on for that period of time. So Mm -hmm. in the middle of the show, I told the audience, like, you know what? I'm tired. Um, I'm just going to take a bit of a rest. 
you do you, you know, do whatever you need to do. Maybe you need to check your phone. Maybe you need to use the washroom, go outside, take a breather. Um, but I, I just need a second. And I tilted back in my wheelchair on stage and created, it was almost like an exhale in the mm-hmm. audience where everyone was like, oh, wait, we're humans. We have human needs. Maybe I'll stretch, you know, maybe I'll stand up mm-hmm. for a bit. Maybe I'll lie down. Somebody, uh, a wheelchair user, got out of their chair and just lay down on the floor during that section on one show um, because that they were given the space and the opportunity to do it. So that's one of the ways I'm interested in everything from like a wheelchair uh, snow drying station for the winter to um, learning more about different forms of shadowing, interpretation, and uh, working with. Uh, integrated uh, audio description and the like, but mm-hmm. I think there's lots of possibilities. One of the things I always mean to ask people who work in theater and always forget to ask um, is about access when it comes to financial access. I mean, we talk making the space and the performance itself uh, accessible and inclusive, but you know. It can be expensive to go to the theater. Um, There are, of course, a number of community groups that are more affordable. But if you think about a person with a disability on uh, social assistance, they may not even have the disposable income to, you know, spend $10 or, or, you know, to to be able to go and see a performance somewhere. And likewise, taking lessons, um, you know, getting, you know, just being able to to afford to work as an artist can also be very challenging. What thoughts do you have about financial accessibility to theater, both for artists as well as the audience? Yeah, this is a huge, huge thing. Um, Even thinking in terms of, let's say that someone does have the disposable income to pay maybe a $5 pay-what-you-can ticket, but they're relying on wheel trans to get them to the theater on time. They don't know. They might be late. They might, you know, their timing might change. And then how can they take the gamble to even to spend that amount of money if that's their disposable income for for that month? Um, so, so many huge barriers in terms of financial accessibility that then tie into structural access and mm. classes and uh you know, even the ability to just be available for auditions for a performer. You don't get paid for auditions and they can take so much time. Now self-tapes at least relieve some of the travel time but open up other barriers. Um, It's it's a huge issue. I, for programs that that I'm working on, and that's partly, you know, this particular workshop is, um, is there's no... There's no payment associated with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, but I think beyond that, for any professional training programs, there needs to be a payment to the artist to take part in it because not everybody can even take the time to show up somewhere for free. And realistically, in any sort of professional development opportunity for artists, uh, for specifically disabled artists, they're offering so much in terms of how how to structure the industry, offering so much in terms of their own perspective and creativity. Mm-hmm. They should be paid for taking part in a training program as opposed to sort of eating eating that time cost and potentially also having to pay for the instruction. 
Afira, unfortunately, speaking of a time cost, we are out of time on the program. Thank you so much for speaking to us today. Thank you so much for having me. Ofira Kaloff is a multi-award-winning disabled writer, performer, and producer. Her work weaves together music, comedy, and storytelling centering disability and chronic illness experience. In conjunction with the Centre for Independent Living Toronto, Ofira is hosting Crip Storytelling, a program which invites a cross-disability group of participants to explore how we tell our personal stories through a disability lens. The workshop is taking place on June 20th from 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern. It includes ASL interpretation and is being held over Zoom. The workshop will be recorded and made available for two weeks. So if you're not able to attend in person, you can listen to the recording. Go to the website for the Centre for Independent Living in Toronto. That's CILT.ca to get the Zoom invite. As you heard, it is free of charge. So I hope many of you will take the opportunity to not only participate in the workshop, but maybe take a crack at writing your own stories through the lens of disability. That's all the time we have today. I've been your host, Jyothi Gupta, the technical producer for The Pulse is Nasreen Abdul-Majid. Andy Frank is the manager for AMI-audio. Thanks a lot for listening. Enjoy the rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.